So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back. Hello. So I feel like this is one of those weeks where you realise how stressful it can be running for businesses. Yeah. It's been so busy that time management has become a very very important thing this week it's a different kind of stress when we're busy so we've got several multiple projects on in fact just for people to sort of really get a a view of what it's like we had a massive project confirmed for virgin media which then who then pulled the plug at the last last minute and we were like we were set and ready to go but it's actually been like that's actually been quite good because we've got two other big projects on at the same time so that's actually been helpful even though like we've just lost out on a on a huge contract and a ton of money that stress of like making sure this person's here at this time and 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 juggling all of those things is definitely much less stressful. It's stressful, but it's a different kind of stress and it's much more copable with than the stress of we've got no money coming in, we've got no jobs, like what are we going to do kind of stress. I think it's the busy stress that gets me more than the no jobs are coming in stress because I've always got the confidence that if there's no jobs coming in, that's like, okay, I've got loads of time now to sit down and make sure those jobs come in so I'm like I'm used to I suppose because I'm doing a lot of the inbound stuff that yeah that's, that's really funny I like I I like when there's I just I don't like when there's no projects in but when there's no projects in for me that's great because that gives me more time to work on the things that help it kind of long term so when we opened Parlour I went and Apollo's our tattoo studio on Curtain Road. I, I went and sat on the front desk for the first couple of weeks because we couldn't afford to get a receptionist yet. And it's like I'd, I'd worked in the tattoo industry, so I knew what I was doing. I went and worked on reception. And I remember our first week was super duper busy. And then our second week was so dead. And I was just convinced that like, that was it. We were never going to have another customer again. And then it gets busy and you're absolutely fine. But yeah. there's there's something in my head when that work's not coming in. That I'm just like, this is it. We're screwed. We're done. Does that motivate you to then work really hard to make sure those people come in? It terrifies me. But I suppose you use that downtime rather than worrying about it. You use that downtime to just sort of start promoting. And I think the frustrating thing is promotion takes a while to kick in Mm -hmm. so you do that promotion but you may not see the results of that for like six weeks if someone's like they've discovered you and then they if we're using parlor as an example then oh they see it they like it they follow you and then maybe they book in in six weeks time that's like that doesn't help you that week when you're like ah we've got no bookings yeah but i guess i did know that it was gonna take a while for and i mean now it's it's hard to get an appointment there it's like booked up all the time but in those in those early weeks it definitely was like oh this is terrifying because mm. you don't know you don't know no i feel like if you open something good that people want people will come if it's good if it's good and you've and you've managed to tell them about that exists yeah yeah, because that's the other challenge is letting people know that you're actually there i gave an interview um this week and i said that line that i always say which is within our first year of business we'd done projects for adidas nike and microsoft Mm -hmm. and then i was sitting down and kind of thinking about that and like that makes us sound great 
but that doesn't relay the actual truth of our business. Yeah. Because although we did work with those three clients within the first year, we also were struggling to pay the rent and we, we didn't really know that we were going to be okay until we were like three years in yeah. because we were still having like months where we wouldn't get paid and we were all taking like the tiniest wages and stuff like that. So um, I think I might start refreshing that answer because yes, we did come out with a bang and like we got loads of attention. And but so with the Adidas project, that was we basically broke even on that. We didn't mm. make hardly anything from it because we used the the profit in that to make the project actually bigger and better than it originally was so we could then use it as a promotional tool going forward. Yeah, we were always reinvesting into the business, which I suppose is, is why it was so hard on us personally for the first three years because everything was, and I mean, still now, I mean, nine years in, like pretty much everything that we make goes back into the business. Yeah. Be it it's people the resources, our like paint, our stock, like ev- like just everything just goes back into the business. But I guess we've always been sort of long-term thinkers in that way. Yeah, because I think a lot of people assume that by running your own business, you earn loads of money. It's funny talking to like some of my friends who like work freelance or work elsewhere uh, who earn like a really big wage. Then when you actually talk about how much you earn, it's way lower than what they're on. But you're building something for the long term rather than just taking all the money out of it straight away. I can look back on the last nine years and I don't feel miserable about any of it. Yeah. Whereas the, I look back at the years before we started the company and like I, I I do look at those as like, I was really miserable, man. Yeah. I was not having fun in my life. Like I was, I enjoyed painting, but other than that, I was just like stuck. Didn't know what I was doing. A, a huge factor of that is is happiness and I think you can't really... I'd, I'd much rather have had the last nine years of all the experiences we've been through, good and bad, mm-hmm. than like sitting on a fat amount of money in my bank account, um, but like dreading going into the office every day. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking about happiness, that kind of leads on pretty well to a question that someone... Mm, and I think that it's probably a question that a lot of people are probably going to be struggling with. So uh, it's a good one to answer, I think. So basically, um, he's got a full-time job and a steady relationship is there a time limit to being creative? So he says he's 29. Is there a time limit to being creative? Um, he does portrait photography and has his own site, which is a music site that kind of gets him access to free gigs and stuff like that. Because he's got the pressures of turning 30 along with balancing creative passions over financial gain. Do you think there's ever a time to call it quits and focus on more straightforward goals? Um, and I guess that's what we've just been talking about by accident at the beginning there. Mm. So I think the, the wording of that is really interesting. Do you think there's ever a time to call it quits and focus on more straightforward goals? Like, yeah, sure. If that's what you want to do, if that's what makes you happy. Yeah, like what's straightforward, I suppose, is the, the question there. Like, is straightforward going to get a job that you hate, but it pays well? Or is straightforward carrying on with what you're doing i think it's just society's expectations of you the pressures of turning 30 like 30 is just a number doesn't mean shit yeah doesn't mean anything so you're turning whatever age you're turning and so in your head you've got this kind of picture of like oh shit i'm 30 i should be xyz yeah it's funny because i remember like being a kid and thinking like literally 30 was my time i'd have a house i'd be married i'd probably like start to look to have a kid yeah to me now they're still quite far off in terms of what i would want but yeah i think it's just that 30 number is is a weird one like i turned 30 last year and like nothing changes it's completely fine so that pressure is 
is nothing. Yeah, and I mean, you have strong enough self-awareness of you know who you are and you're not defined by anyone's expectations on yourself other than yourself. Yeah. I so think- you didn't feel pressure at turning 30 because you know that people see you as a confident person, that no one was looking at you to be like, oh, well, like tapping their watch, like, oh, time's running out. I think women feel it a lot as well for, oh, you've got to be a certain age, like, oh, have you, are you not having kids yet? Yeah. And it's like, just let people fucking live their lives and do what they want to do. Yeah, I think stop caring about what other people think so much. Like, yeah. it's obviously easy to say, but if someone's looking at you and saying, oh, you should be doing this by your 30, by your 40, by your 50, just ignore it. Like, why? Do do what you want to do for yourself. Don't do it for other people. Like, why? Why Why do you have to do that? You have got one life and you have to live it how you want to live it. And I think that that means, like, if you're listening to this, then it probably means that you want to do something that's more fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is there a time limit to being creative? Like, fuck no. Like, like that's the main question. And that was the the headline of the email. Is there a time limit to being creative? And it's like, it's like, I just want to scream like, no, like I, like if, if there is, then I don't want to carry on because if I all of a sudden get to 40 or 50 or 60 and, and I can't be creative anymore, then what's the point, man? Yeah. And it's like, in terms of like, this guy's a portrait photographer in his spare time. Like I obviously know portrait photography quite well. And like, I've been shooting for maybe two years. So I started when I was 28. So a year younger than this guy. And when I turned 30, if I wanted to, I could go and do that full time. Yeah. It's, there's a possibility there to do that. If I started now, say if I decided I wanted to become a landscape photographer, I'll spend the next few years learning it to a degree. And then, then I could go and do that. It's like, there's never, like age doesn't matter. Yeah. I, 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 we sound like we're really telling this guy off. Um, and if you're listening, then, uh, we're absolutely not. We're just trying to shake you out of worrying about what other people think about you. Cause it's all, it's all bullshit. And what matters is, is how you feel about yourself. Like when you're on your own with your, with yourself and your thoughts, like how do you feel about yourself and, and are you feeling fulfilled? And do you wake up in the morning and go like, yeah, I'm going to this job, but like I've, I've got my photography on the side and I've got my music project and that's all great. If they are things that you want to turn into, like that's what you want to do for your living, totally possible. So he funds his music site, but he's um, getting regular work for other pu- publications. He's, but he says that's all free work, but like there's already interest there in what he's building. Yeah. And you start off by doing it for free. And like we spoke about at the beginning, our first three years were really like hard and uncertain. And we didn't know like where the money was going to come from. Yeah. I think if you're at the age where you've got a mortgage or some like something you have to pay every month or even just rent, which is, which is all of us. Yeah. If you can afford in your steady job or whatever you call it to drop down to four days a week and still pay those things, but just cut back where you can. And you'll probably find just on that fifth day a week, then do your fun thing, do your thing that you think this could become something. Just like restructure your time a bit, work out or do it on weekends. Like there's so much time to still do that. And I think you can still earn a good amount of money working four days a week and then spending that fifth day doing something you're more passionate about, but still earning money from it. Yeah. Don't let other people's opinions hold you back because because it is holding you back. And yeah, people might think like I moved back in with my mum when we started the business and that was not a good look, especially if I was trying to talk to the ladies, like, <laughs> but living back, living with your mum, like, um, I sold my sneaker collection. I sacrificed all of these things, but that's because I, I thought 
yeah, some people might be like, oh, you're wearing ratty sneakers and like, and you live with your mum. That I might have to deal with that for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but I'm fine with dealing with for that for a long-term happiness. And that's fine. I'll take that those few steps back. But I think what most people do is they get to that position of like, I'm comfortable. I can like, I can go out with my mates and afford a round for everyone. Like, and they get kind of stuck in that that circle of like oh this is how much I earn this is how this is what is expected of me and they're too scared to take those steps back because of other people's judgment yeah but really like your long-term happiness is is so much more important than than a short sharp judgment from someone yeah especially if you're 30 and I don't know what the retirement age is now it's like 68 70 or something so you're not even you're probably like a third of the way into your actual working career. So you might as well set it up to be something that you want to do for the rest of that time. Like you're still so young now. Like that's, that's not a. Yeah. You're, you're a baby. You're an absolute baby. And, um, I mean, I, I started my speaking career in January. Yeah. I'm at the complete beginning of that journey. And I hope that when I'm like 45, I'm starting new things all the time because that's what's fun about life is just trying new things and, and being creative forever wow this has worked out really bloody nicely as if we had planned it which we hadn't (laughs) but um but that segues beautifully into this week's guest who is cindy gallup cindy is 59 um and i've heard her talk about that before about like mentioning your age especially if you're older and wearing it as rather than hiding from it wearing it as a badge of pride because it shows that you have experience and that you have um seniority so don't yeah, so she's not, never afraid to um, hide behind her age and she always declares it. Cindy Gallup is a speaker, a consultant and the founder of sex tech startup Make Love Not Porn. Cindy has spoken on stages around the world and her TED talk where Make Love Not Porn was launched has had well over 2 million views. Make Love Not Porn is a social sex video sharing platform and we'll get into that in the show. And I think like 10 years ago, we kind of looked at sort of dating apps and stuff like that as like really weird. Um, I'm wondering, and I guess if Cindy has her way, if in like 10 years time, sharing sex online might be just this completely normal thing. Yeah, maybe. And a lot of people already are because their platform boasts uh, 400,000 users globally. Cindy's absolutely fearless. And I guess this is why we think she's such an important guest. She says that she likes to blow shit up, but she doesn't do this for no reason. She blows up the boring, the status quo, the way things have always been done. She is the epitome of a creative rebel. This episode, we talk about porn, valuing yourself and motivation. So the thing that most motivates me, that will make me keep going, is the dynamic I call, I'm going to fucking well show you. You tell me it can't be done, I'm going to fucking well show you. Hi, Cindy. Hi. Thanks for doing our podcast. Thrilled to be here. Let's talk about sex. Because no one really does, do they? I mean, we all have it. And um, we wouldn't be here without it. Yet we have real problems societally and culturally having open conversations about sex. But you you don't. So let's talk about sex. Sure. Well, to, well, I mean, to be frank, everything in my life and career has happened by complete accident. 
And so my startup, Make Love Not Porn, is also a complete accident. And um, it came about because I date younger men who tend to be men in their 20s. And about 11 or 12 years ago now, um, I began realising through dating younger men that I was encountering an issue that would quite honestly never have crossed my mind if it had not, you know, um, occurred so very intimately and very personally. <laughs> um, I realised I was experiencing what happens when two things converge. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, I stress the dual convergence because most people think it's only one thing. I realised I was experiencing what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. When those two things converge, porn becomes by default sex education in not a good way. Mm. And so I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioural memes in bed. I went, whoa, I know where that <laughs> behaviour is coming from. I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that because 11 or 12 years ago, no one was talking about this. Nobody was writing about it. This was me in isolation, being a naturally action-oriented person, going, I want to do something about this. So did, did you notice that your sex in the 80s and 90s transformed in the 2000s? Well, I noticed a pattern of behaviours and approaches and I went, I know what's influencing that. So 10 years ago, I put up on No Money, this tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that posted the myths of porn and balanced them with reality. So the construct was porn world versus real world. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to launch it at TED. I, this was in TED 2009. I became the only TED speaker to say the words come on my face on the TED stage <laughs> six times in succession. And now the, the talk, only person on our podcast who said that as well. So good. Congratulations. Um, the talk went viral instantly and it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. And I realised I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. Yeah. And, you know, I got thousands of emails from people all around the world, young and old, male and female, straight and gay, and I felt, therefore, a personal responsibility to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that would make it much more far-reaching, helpful and effective. And so I turned it into a business because I believe the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. Mm -hmm. I turned it into the world's first and only human-curated, user-generated social sex video sharing platform. Because what I'm addressing is... The issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. And so Make Love Not Porn, our tagline is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. We have one single-minded mission, which is to help make it easier for everybody in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex. And so what we're doing on Make Love Not Porn is we are socialising sex. Um, we are normalising it, taking the shame and embarrassment out of it. We are effectively what Facebook would be if Facebook allowed you to socially, sexually self-express, which, which yeah. they don't. We're pioneering this whole new category on the internet that has never existed before, social sex. And we're doing that because when you open up an open, honest dialogue around sex, when it's easy to talk about, what that enables is consent, good sexual values and good sexual behaviour. Um, we call ourselves the social sex revolution. The revolution part is not the sex, it's the social. Mm -hmm. What's good sexual behaviour? So, you know, I design Make Love Not Porn around my own beliefs and philosophies. And one of them is that everything in life starts with you and your values. So I regularly ask people this question. What are your sexual values? 
And nobody can ever answer me because we're not taught to think like that. Mm. Our parents bring us up to have good manners, a work ethic, sense of responsibility, accountability. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed. But they should because they're empathy, sensitivity, generosity, kindness, honesty, respect are as important as they are in every other area of our lives and our work where we are actively taught to exercise those values. And in that context, what we are doing at Make Love Not Porn could not be more topical because the era of Me Too has quite rightly surfaced a huge dialogue about consent. Mm -hmm. Everybody's talking about consent. Everybody's writing about consent. There are lots of thoughtful, nuanced think pieces about consent. Here's the problem. Nobody knows what consent actually looks like in bed. Mm. Nothing but nothing educates people about great consensual communicative sex, about good sexual values and good sexual behaviour, like watching people actually having that kind of sex. And Make Love Not Porn is the only place on the internet where you can do that. Every one of our real-world sex videos is an object lesson in consent, communication, good sexual values and good sexual behaviour. We are education through demonstration. I think it's really interesting uh, the feedback that you got from one of your users I, I heard you talking about recently um, who said, I watch porn to jerk off. And, and what, what was the exact so, I mean, Yeah, but This is a young man who said to us, watching porn makes me want to jerk off. Watching your videos makes me want to have sex. Yeah. And, and so all we're doing is we're doing the same thing every other social platform is doing. We're just, you know, enabling people to connect. You know, and in this case, to connect around shared sexual values and a shared desire to see more openness and healthiness around this universal air of human experience. And what makes Make Love Not Porn not porn? So um, it's indicative of how very narrow-minded and fucked up our society is around sex. That people think, oh, people having sex on video must be porn. Mm -hmm. Porn is performative, Porn is produced. Porn is manufactured entertainment. If porn is the Hollywood blockbuster, Make Love Not Porn is a documentary. The reason amateur is the biggest growth sector in porn has nothing to do with porn. It has everything to do with the fact that everybody wants to know what everyone else is really doing in bed and nobody does. And now for the first time at Make Love Not Porn, we're showing that. So, so here's how we're different. Porn is purely and simply masturbation material. That's its role. It's very mm -hmm. good at it. We are not just that. We are that too, by the way. Very happy to be that. <laughs> but we are many more things on top of that. So, for example, social sex is enormously reassuring because we celebrate real-world everything. Real-world bodies, real-world hair, real-world penis size, real-world breast size. You can preach body positivity all you like. You can talk about self-love. Nothing but nothing makes you feel great about your own body, like watching people who are no one's idea of aspirational body types getting turned on by each other, desiring each other, having a bloody amazing time in bed. Our mantra is everybody is beautiful when they're having real-world sex, and they really are. Then we're also reassuring because we celebrate the accidents the awkwardness, the messiness. If you only ever learn about sex from porn, porn teaches you that sex is a performance. Nothing must go wrong. Oh my God, it did. How excruciating embarrassing. I can't see that silly whatever. Whereas we go, if you can't laugh at yourselves in bed, when can you? 
And in our videos, ridiculous things happen. You know, cats jump up on beds. You know, mothers-in-law call in the middle of sex because this is the real world. Then, um, importantly, we celebrate emotion, real-world love, intimacy, feelings. Our members write to us, and I make love, not porn stars. You know, one man wrote, and he, and he said, the sex in that video was incidental. I want what you guys have. You know, I saw the way you looked at each other. I saw the way your eyes met. I hope one day I can meet somebody that I will have that. We, we had such moving emails. And um, interestingly, we have a very unique category of Make Love Not Porn, which I wanted in place when we launched and my friends helped make it happen. Make Love Not Porn is the only place on the internet where porn stars share videos of the sex they have offset in the real world. Because porn stars have real-world sex too. That is completely different from the sex they perform on set. Mm. You know, and so our gay, straight, lesbian, trans porn star friends share on Make Love Not Porn videos of the sex they have in their real-world relationships with their real-world partners. And they talk in those videos about how different that is from, you know, what they perform professionally. And you've actually made friends with, with porn stars and you've got Generation Y porn star friends. Um, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the porn industry has been enormously interested in the support of what we're doing. No one's tried to disrupt in a very long time. And so, yep, yep, um, we have a lot of friends in the industry. That's amazing. How have you turned it into a business? I designed Make Love Not Porn around what I believe is the business model of the future. And this is an important part of the work that I do, um, both in my consulting and speaking work, which is how I support myself, but also in what I say to our industry about the future of advertising. I observe too many people thinking either, oh, this is our industry business model, this is the only business model that we have ever operated and ever will operate. Or they think there's a set number of business models out there and we have to operate one of those. Neither is true. Your business model can be anything you want it to be. And in fact, a very good way to, to start is to ask yourself, how would I like to make money? Because it's a safe bet that you probably would like to make it rather differently from the way you're currently making it. So I believe the business model of the future is shared values plus shared action equals shared profit, financial profit and social profit. In other words, when brands and businesses come together with their audiences around values that you all share, and by the way, when I say audiences, I mean consumers, employees, you know, suppliers, analysts. And you know, when you come together around shared values, which, by the way, is the most important requirement for a good relationship in life as much as business, you will never truly bond with someone if you don't share the same values. So when you come together around shared values and you are then enabled to collectively and collaboratively co-act on those values, to walk the talk together, you can then make things happen in the real world that will benefit consumers, benefit society and benefit the brand that's business. So I designed Make Love Not Porn around a revenue-sharing business model. I believe that everybody should realise the value of what they create. And I feel that particularly strongly because my background is theatre and advertising, two industries where ideas and creativity are massively undervalued even by the creators themselves. So I believe that if you create something that gives other people pleasure, you should see a financial return on it. And the more people you give more pleasure to, the greater that financial return should be. Mm. And so the way our business model Make Love Not Porn works is that our members pay to subscribe, rent and stream social sex videos. And half that income goes to our our contributors, or as we call them, our Make Love Not Porn Stars. 
that's a, a there was a lot to unpack there but um one of the i think one of the key points that you mentioned there that definitely will resonate with our audience is having the confidence to to actually charge if you are providing that value to your audience and i think it's something that definitely creative people do struggle with well basically people value you at the value you are seen to put on yourself and so you need to state and project that value and how do you do that First of all, you do it. Okay? You, you don't talk about it and you don't want nervously about it. You do it. And then secondly, you operate the um, key principle that I always advise, which is, and it doesn't matter whether this is, you know, you're interviewing for a job or you are in a performance and pay review or you're asking for a pay rise or you are putting a proposal to a client. What you ask for is always the highest amount you can say out loud without actually bursting out laughing. That's great. Great advice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing. So you have a really clear vision and goals with what you're trying to do with Make Love Not Porn. And to me, having just spoken to you for 10 minutes about the startup, there's no malice. There's no, there's nothing evil going on there. There's no, it's not shady. It's not dirty. It's not, there's no, there's nothing bad going on. However, it seems like you are bumping up against obstacle after obstacle and you've been going for 10 years. What are those obstacles and how are you responding to them? Sure. So um, the one thing I didn't realise when I embarked on this venture was that I would fight an enormous battle every single day to build it, essentially because every piece of business infrastructure any other tech startup just takes for granted. We can't because the small print always says no adult content. And this is all pervasive across every area of the business in ways that people outside this sphere don't realise. I can't get funded. I can't get banked. It took me four years to find one bank here in America that would allow me to open a business bank account for Make Love Not Porn. Our biggest operational challenge is payment processing. PayPal won't work with adult content. Stripe can't. Mainstream credit card processors won't. Mm. Every single tech service that we need to use to operate our platform, be it hosting, encoding, encrypting, the terms of service always say no adult content. I have to go to the people at the top of the company explain what we're doing, beg to be allowed to use their service. Sometimes they'll let me, sometimes they won't. It's very labour intensive. We had to build our entire video streaming, video sharing platform from scratch ourselves as proprietary technology because existing streaming services will not stream adult content. I'm so jealous of friends who built video startups on top of Vimeo. Quick, easy, simple. I can't do that. Even something as apparently straightforward as finding an email partner to send a membership emails out with. MailChimp won't work with adult content. We're rejected by six or seven to be found one who would. So, you know, I am fighting this battle very publicly on a daily basis because the answer to everything that worries people about porn and sex is not to shut down, censor, clamp down, block, repress. It is instead to open up. Open up the dialogue around all of this in the way that I'm working to with Make Love Not Porn. Open up to welcoming, supporting and funding the entrepreneurs who want to disrupt all of this for the better. And open up to allowing us to do business in the same way that everybody else does. Because when you do that, you completely transform the landscape of what is deemed adult. I like to repurpose Mm. in this context Wayne LaPierre of the NRA's infamous gun control quote. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a business is a good guy with a better business. That's what I'm doing. Do you think that the partners that won't work with you are missing a trick, missing an opportunity? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but I'm fighting this battle on behalf of everybody because, 
you know, the thing about the adult industry and sex tech generally, you know, when you force an entire industry into the shadows and underground, you make it very easy for bad things to happen and you make it very difficult for good things to happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've said this publicly in interviews. Every single bank that refuses to bank a legal adult venture, every single payment processor that will not work with a legal adult venture, every business partner that won't partner with a legal adult venture, they are directly responsible for all the bad things that happen in the adult industry. Do you think that's because they they are worried of their of the public perception of them working with sex tech? Um, to, our biggest obstacle across the board to make love not porn is the social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think. Mm which operates around sex unlike any other area. And it's ridiculous because, you know, I want to say to everybody, drop the pretense. You know, people's reactions are all based on what they think other people think. Mm -hmm. and I want to go, everyone thinks the same way, just drop it all. Simultaneously. <laughs> then we'll all be a lot, a lot happier. Yeah, I, I suppose it's there. there's this myth that we've bought into that children are going to find it and then they're going to become corrupted. But yet, we give them iPads. And the the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. Many things are laid at porn store that should be laid at societies. And the reason I'm doing what I'm doing to make love, not porn, is because the average age date which a child is first exposed to porn online is eight years old. Mm. Actually, a global survey done five years ago by Bitdefender indicated then that age had dropped to six. This is not because six-year-olds and eight-year-olds go looking for porn. They don't. It's a function of what, in the digital world we live in today, is absolutely inevitable, cannot be prevented, no matter how much we'd like to all try. They stumble across it. It's what somebody shows your child on a cell phone in the playground. It's what happens when they go round to the neighbour's house. Because it doesn't matter what parental controls you have at home, your mm. kids go other places. Or, and this is by far the most common... Um, you know, they Google some innocent word and it pops up. You know, um, one friend, her eight-year-old daughter, Googled black tights. She spelt it tits, you can imagine, you know. Yeah, wow. Um, you know, to, um, a father wrote to me on Facebook years ago, complete stranger. His mes message was headed, my wife and I cannot thank enough what you're doing. He said, we have a 10-year-old son and we decided it was time to have the sex talk. So I sat down with him and he said to me, Daddy, why do men wear masks when they're having sex? And this father wrote to me and he said, we have parental controls on our iPad and my 10-year-old son has somehow managed to find his way to a site where men wear masks when they're having sex. He said, we can't thank you enough when he's older, we're sending him to your website. So what I, um, I say to parents um, two very important things. The first is you cannot begin talking to your child about sex today too early. When I say that, I don't mean literally talk about sex. What I mean is the very first time your child ever, you know, asks where babies come from, touch the genitals, the most important thing isn't even what you say as much as how you say it. Never, ever get angry. Never get visibly flustered. Never get embarrassed. Never shut them up. Never slap them down. Never kind of, you know, leave the conversation, leave the room. Mm. Instead, answer them completely straightforwardly, honestly, truthfully, and open up a channel of communication that will always be there for them as they get older. And then the second thing I tell parents you have to do today is that when you talk to your child about sex as early as possible, you must also talk to them about porn. And that's a lot easier to do than most parents think. So all you have to do is a version of this, and you dial it up or down depending on the age of the child. You say, darling, so we've just talked about sex, and you know how together... We watch movies and videos and cartoons where things happen that aren't real. Well, they're also movies and videos about sex, and they're not real either. And because of that, they can be quite confusing, 
And so we'd rather you didn't actually watch them till you're older. But if you should ever come across anything like this, or somebody shows you something like that, come and talk to us, we can explain it. Mm-hmm. And that's all you have to say. But you will have done two very important things. The first is that you will have set up in their minds for when they stumble across porn, it's not real. And secondly, you have encouraged them to come and talk to you about it. And trust me, you will really want them to talk to you about it because otherwise what they stumble across can be utterly traumatizing and it can set up completely the wrong impression in their minds. And, you know, I say that as somebody who, you know, I am my own research lab. I'm very open about the fact that I date younger men casually in recreation. I date a lot of them simultaneously. I see for myself exactly how this plays out in the real world all the time when we do not talk openly and honestly about sex in the real world. Are the men that you're dating, you think that, um, like, what are their problems that they're, that they're having around sex? Is it is it shame or...? They're not problems per se. I mean, I should explain that, you know, although I date younger men casually, no matter how casual relationship, I have one fundamental criteria. They have to be a very nice person. I have fantastic radar for very nice people. As a result, I only date utterly lovely younger men in an atmosphere of mutual trust, respect, affection and liking. And consequently, and ironically, my so-called casual relationships go on a lot longer than most people's so-called committed ones. (laughs) I date younger men off and on over periods of two, three, four, five, 10, 15 years. They may go on to date girls their own age. They may get married. Um, They may move away. Because we like each other, we stay friends. You know, we'll meet platonically for drinks or coffee. And then every so often, the relationships end, the marriages end, and they come back. And it's very nice. So bear in mind, these are utterly lovely younger men. But, you know, they've grown up in a world where we do not talk about sex. And so everything about sex they learn from porn. And that's not a good idea because it is not porn's job to educate about sex. It's society's. In terms of your demographics, do you find that different countries are more responsive to it than others like like Scandinavia, for example, I feel like that'd be a bit more... Open. No, um, no, not in the slightest. Yeah. Um, we are a global platform. The issue we're tackling is global everywhere. Mm-hmm. And here's what I mean, and why it's so important when I say our mission is to talk about sex. Even in a region that, that appears to be open about sex, like, like Scandinavia, yeah. because, because we don't actually talk about sex as a society, it is an area of rampant insecurity for every single one of us, no exceptions. Mm-hmm. We all get vulnerable when we get naked. Sexual egos are very fragile. People, therefore, bizarrely, find it most difficult to talk about sex to the people they're actually having it with while they're actually having it. Because in that situation, you are terrified that if you say anything at all about what's going on, if you comment on the action anyway at all, you will potentially hurt the other person's feelings. You will put them off you. You will derail the encounter. You'll potentially derail the entire relationship. But at the same time, you want to please your partner. You want to make them happy. Mm. Everybody wants to be good in bed. No one knows exactly what that means. And so you will seize your cues on how to do that from anywhere you can. And if the only cues you've ever seen are in porn, because your parents never taught you about sex, because your school didn't teach you, because your friends aren't honest, those are the cues you're going to take to not very good effect. And yes, having spoken in Scandinavian countries many times, I can tell you that absolutely goes on in Scandinavia as well. <laughs> How have you kept yourself going? Has there ever been a point where you've thought that you might give up? 
Oh my God, all the time. <laughs> yes. Um, so the thing that most motivates me, that will make me keep going, is the dynamic I call, I'm going to fucking well show you. You tell me it can't be done, I'm going to fucking well show you. You put us on a path, I'm going to fucking well show you. And so I have to turn, you know, all of the demoralization and despair and frustration I feel on a daily basis into motivation and inspiration. Where did that drive come from in you? I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> I think researching your career, it sounds like it has always been there, though. And I mean, the name of this podcast is Creative Rebels. Like, we actively encourage people to look at different ways of doing things. And I think a, a fantastic driver is proving people wrong and, and that fuck you attitude, mm. which I, I love that. And, and we love that about you. So moving on to your your prior career, being a, because I've heard you speak about this before, being um, a woman in in advertising, what were, your, what were the challenges that you faced around that? Um, well, the point I always make to people is that I really didn't think about it like that because a fish does not know what water is. You are surrounded by sexism, um, but, you know, coming up through the advertising ranks in the 80s, that was the way it was. You know, a fish doesn't know what water is. When you're working on these kind of mostly male teams, was there ever a case of where you were just brought in because you were female to, to add, like to tick a box yep. and to add um, a... No, um, no I, I have been enormously lucky in my advertising career. Um, you know, I've been lucky in that I have never encountered the the, the derailing uh, degree of sexual harassment that many, many women in advertising have. And I've been lucky enough to work for male bosses and male agency leaders who believed in me and championed me and wanted me to succeed. And that is also incredibly rare. And so, and so no, I was never in that position. And, and, and I feel very fortunate, very lucky. But many, many women in our industry are. So you say that you're the Michael Bay of business and that you, you blow shit up. That's your, your tagline. Well, I should, so as a benefit of your audience, I should explain that, um, yep, you know, so um, what I explain to people is that, you know, um, I, I support myself through consultancy and, and business speaking. And I consult very selectively, only for clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. So you come to me for radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative. I don't do status quo. And so I sum up my consultancy approach as, I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. But I do that very deliberately. That is not a bit of whimsy or a bit of creativity, a bit of fun. I do that because I'm a great believer in be your own filter. When I characterise what I do in that way, it attracts to me the people who want what I do and it repels the ones who don't. Mm. And I sure as hell want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort and money. Are there many businesses that are willing to blow shit up? Not that many, no. So it's quite interesting. And again, I suppose it comes down to the way that you perceive your value and, and reflect your, your value out. I'd imagine there are brands and companies that you've turned down that you won't work with because they're not because they they mm. won't buy mm. into that mm. into that vision mm. so we have a, a very small business team of 15 in, in london um if we were to to come to you for for consulting what are the like main topics and theories that you work around to transform um, well i mean i basically um it's like with any project that comes to me or, or, or any speaking engagement, actually. Um, you know, I, I ask the client um, what they want to achieve. You know, I mean, the case of a speaking gig. And by the way, I'm aware that not many speakers do this. You know, I will say to the mm -hmm. person who wants to book me, 
tell me what tell me what your business objectives are for this event for my talk what do you want the audience to leave thinking feeling and doing and i will then you know again i don't deliver set talks i customize and craft every single talk to achieve those objectives Mm -hmm. so equally you know with consultancy clients i go what are the biggest business problems that you would like solved what are your business challenges and then come up with solutions and what are most businesses problems um, to, oh, I mean, they vary enormously, actually. I mean, I'm usually brought in to invent the future, you know, in some form or other for, for, um, for a business. That can take many forms, but, but it's essentially always actually about completely leapfrogging the short term to define your own future in a way that then absolutely delivers, you know, financially and business-wise um, what you need. Um, because... My favourite quote of all time is Alan Kay, who said, in order to predict the future, you have to invent it. I am all about inventing the future. Too many people think the future is something that happens without us, rolls us over its wake. I'm all about decide what you want the future to be and make it happen. And so um, when I talk to businesses, and and by the way, I also make the point, and I say this um, from speaking stages quite regularly, I'm not one of those speakers or consultants who pontificates. Okay, Everything I talk to you about, I'm doing myself. You know, I'm trying, I'm experimenting, I'm succeeding, I'm failing, I'm trying again. And so um, in terms of businesses inventing the future, I make the point that everyone needs to do do what what I've been forced to do myself with Make Love Not Porn, which is when you have a truly world-changing startup, Mm -hmm. you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. And so what I say to companies that means is do not play the game by everybody else's rules, completely redesign the playing field. And then you end up with a much more profitable company or organisation. Yeah. Because everyone else, if if they're playing it safe, it's 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 the ones that have the grand vision. I sp- it's it's making me think of the um Apple commercial. The Apple commercial yeah. where it's it's the ones who, who blow shit up, think it's different. the rebels yeah. that people yeah. that think differently yeah. that do actually make um, yeah, those changes. Yeah, um, the biggest risk is not taking one. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So because of love our audience potentially would be starting new businesses Mm. or kind of going out on their own what would be your advice to someone who's kind of heading down that path who maybe has a rough idea of what they want to do but what could they do to kind of like think differently and shake things up some years back i spoke at Cannes, uh, a seminar called porn youth and brands the biggest social cultural influence on young people today that we don't talk about Mm -hmm. And in the Q&A session, a young woman put up a hand and said, what is the single piece of advice that you would give to a young person going into advertising today? And I said, don't. <laughs> and then I said, let me explain what I mean by that. Don't go into advertising to go into advertising. Go into advertising to make what you want to happen, happen. So go into advertising, you know, join an advertising agency or a media agency, whatever it is, and then take a long, hard look around you identify what you think should be there that isn't, what you would love to see there that nobody's doing, Mm. what, you know, you feel is missing that you would find enormously useful, and then do that. Because there is so much opportunity for that sort of freshness of perspective and difference of vision that everybody mired in the old world order cannot raise their heads above the parapet to see. And that's that's a huge advantage for anybody young who's, who's starting out. And, you know, start your own thing. You know, you can do that, actually. You can address that within the agency who's been lucky enough to hire you. Mm-hmm. Or jump ship, start it yourself, 
and then some holding company will buy you years later for a shit ton of money. <laughs> you know, um, but but yeah, just just you know, identify what you think is missing and do it. What do you think that is the the main thing that holds most people back for actually going for it? Making the enormous mistake of thinking that a job is the safe option. Um, Fred Wilson, who's a very famous venture capitalist here in New York, a partner in Union Square Ventures, um, famously said, the three most addictive things in life are heroin, carbohydrates, and a monthly paycheck. A job is not the safe option. Because in a job, you are at the complete mercy of market downturns, management changes, industry dynamics. I always say to people, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those of a large corporate entity who at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. Mm. you. Yeah, that's brilliant. So what you've kind of just said there is you should take it into your own hands. But obviously people who are working for you are mm. putting their faith in you. I mean, my team, you know, have signed up for Startup Life, which I'm enormously grateful to them for doing. Mm. I, I am very realistic with them about, um, well, first, we, they already know how tough it is, you yeah. know. Um, but, but, but also um, because, you know, we have to be completely frank about our challenges to be able to face them together as a team. And so my, my tiny team know that we are fighting this battle together and, and we hope to win it. But... Um, you know, um, as with any battle, the outcome is never certain. Do you think that the advertising industry is broken? Um, yes, I do. Yeah, totally. Why do you think it's broken? It's broken because, and and I changed my own thinking on this uh, one and a half years ago. So in the fall of 2017, the New York Times famously exposed Harvey Weinstein for the serial predator that, mm-hmm. that he was and kicked off the Me Too movement. I'd been speaking out about sexual harassment publicly for years, well before Me Too. And I've been doing that because nobody else would. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, I'd heard from many women in industry with horrific stories, but none of whom wanted to speak up on the record. And so when I read that New York Times story, I thought maybe the time has finally come. And so in October 2017, I... Post on Facebook, and I said, women and men of the advertising industry, you know, it's time to speak up. It's time to expose the Harvey Weinsteins of our industry. Mm-hmm. You know, name names on the record, you know, write to me and I will help make this happen. And to be frank, you know, I, I wasn't thinking a great deal about it when I put that post up. I just thought, okay, this is a good opportunity to make this call. Yeah. I was inundated. And I was inundated with an avalanche of emails from people in the industry all around the world. You know, my inbox was global. And I was so horrified and appalled and disgusted at what turned up in my inbox. I'd always known it was bad. I'd never known it was that bad. That at the last minute, I was speaking two and a half weeks later at the 3% conference. And at the last minute, I rewrote my talk to make the first half of it all about what had shown up in my inbox. Mm -hmm. And what I said to the audience was that um, what had shown up in my inbox had changed my own thinking. Because I've been saying for years to our industry that the biggest issue it faced was diversity and its lack of it. I said to the 3% conference audience in November 2017, the single biggest business issue facing the advertising industry today is sexual harassment. Because sexual harassment manages women out of the industry. It destroys women's careers. It derails women's ambitions. It it crushes women's dreams. Our industry has hemorrhaged untold amounts 
of female creativity and talent and skills because of sexual harassment. And so sexual harassment keeps out of leadership and power and influence the female leaders who would make gender equality, diversity and inclusion happen. And in this presentation, which I recommend your listeners to go and check out, it's on YouTube, Cindy Gallup at the 3% Conference 2017, the presentation is called Where the Money Is, because the back half of it was all about how to build your own business in our industry. So I do recommend the back half of it as well. <laughs> but um, I, I used a quote from a fantastic American reporter called Rebecca Traster, who wrote a piece that fall in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein expose, which was titled you know, our our country's narratives are still being shaped by powerful, lecherous men. And in this piece, she said something along the lines of, you know, she, she talked about this loss of women in every industry. She said, we will never know what the news would have been as they reported it. We will never see the movies yeah. they would have made. And I completed that quote and I said, neither will we see the extraordinary award-winning advertising they would have created we will never see the agencies they would have started, the happy workplaces they would have run, and the innovative, disruptive future they would have invented for the advertising industry. That is the single biggest issue facing our industry today and why it's broken. I, I would agree with that. And also I would think that it's kind of foolish for the men involved to not, um, to not see that this is a huge problem if not for anything else, the, of the amount of money that they're leaving on the table. Absolutely. Mm. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, ours is an industry whose primary target consumer is female. Yeah. And it's dominated by yeah. men. And, and, and it's dominated by men who are treating women appallingly, who are sexist as fuck, sexually harassing out the wazoo. And no wonder 90% of female consumers say they cannot relate to advertising. Yeah, because it's not made by them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Switching gears slightly, what's the uh, best piece of advice you've ever been given? Get more sleep. And do you do, do you? Oh my God, absolutely. I adore sleep. And honestly, it's so important. Do not succumb to that macho thing of I only sleep so many hours a night and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm dead. I mean, sleep as much as you possibly can, honestly. It's just, it's great for your health. It's great for stress. It's great for ideas. You know, it's great for reinvigorating and refreshing. You know, um, I can't remember who it was who said to me, get more sleep, but that is the best piece of advice I've ever been given. How many hours do you get? Ideally, um, seven to eight. You know, and, and, and then I do a lot of traveling. And so when I'm jet lagged, you know, um, it was fantastic because when I was in London, um, in the UK, this past long Easter weekend, um, the first night I slept through, I slept for 12 hours straight. It was fantastic. <laughs> it's very important. And I think we, un we, um, we undervalue it um, immensely. Do you have any other um, creativity hacks? Is there anything that you, you do to sort of in inspire creativity in yourself? I think, you know, what I would say is um, some years ago, and an agency was, you know, consulting me on how to be more creative. You know, they, they wanted to improve their creative output. Mm. And I said, it's very simple. If you want to be more creative, have less meetings. Because when your calendar is jam-packed full with back-to-back -back meetings mm -hmm. from the start to the end of the day, like most people's are in advertising, you can't possibly be creative because you have no time to do so. So have less meetings. How would you um, describe creativity? I don't think it's something you can do um, a big intellectual sort of definition of at all. Um, and I think this is a problem. I think it's mm. it's the term is overused but underdefined. Mm. Mm. We don't. So that's, mm. it's it's kind of a question that mm. I'm starting to ask more people. Like, right. what what is creativity? Right. Well, well, to, you know, I, I think of creativity as just a completely different way of coming at things. 
you know, in, in whatever capacity. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it was interesting because, um, you know, so my background in advertising is account management. And, you know, I was never one of those account men who thought they could do the creative's job at all. Because, you know, I saw the creatives I worked with take extraordinary creative leaps. You know, I had no idea how they did what they did. And interestingly, you know, they would come up with ideas where... They're brilliant ideas, but even the creators who come up with it didn't didn't get fully how brilliant they were because it was obviously my job then to present them to yeah. clients in a way that made them see how extremely effective this would be for their business. And I'd be able to identify exactly the levers that, you know, in a way that the creators themselves, because it was so instinctual to them, you know, they were not able to rationalise yeah. exactly how it was designed to work. And so, yeah, but I, I just think it's a completely different way of coming at things. And the more we encourage everyone to do that, the better. You know, again, you know, I have a great heritage. Um, John Hegarty at BBH always said, at BBH, there's no such thing as the creative department. We expect everyone to be creative and everyone should. That's brilliant. I love that. Yeah, me too. No such thing as the creative department. Because I think working in the creative industries, there's there's not a meeting that we go to where someone doesn't say, oh, but we'll leave that to you because you're the creatives. I'm not a very creative person. Yeah, no, no everybody is a creative person. Yeah, I, when, I the, when, when, when yeah. they're allowed and enabled to be. Mm. Yeah, I truly believe that. And I think we, we have work to do to, to get to that level. I, I think... A, a thing that maybe holds a lot of people back is just fear, fear of judgment. I, I gave a talk recently at, at DNAD and one of my slides says, um, criticism crushes creativity, which is a mouthful. But I think that the fear of of, of criticism or, or someone, like we should be given carte blanche to, there's no such thing as a bad idea because the the more, like creativity breeds creativity and the more that we can experiment, the more will come from it. Well, that's precisely why I always say the best moment of my life, and it wasn't, it wasn't actually a moment, it was a gradual realisation, was the day I realised I no longer give a damn what anybody thinks. Mm. And that's the only way to live your life. Don't give a damn what anybody else thinks. That was fucking powerful. Um, shall we end with that, unless you've got anything else? Um, but, uh, I, I do want to end with a plea to your listeners, if I may, yeah. yes. because I have to do this. You know, um, If you've enjoyed listening to this interview, please, please, please support Make Love Not Porn. Go to makelovenotporn.com, sign up for a subscription. You know, they start at $10 a month, really, really cheap. Um, consider becoming a Make Love Not Porn star. But we would love you to join the social sex revolution and support everything I and my team are doing to help us all get to a world where, as I like to say, Make Love Not Porn operates in the single biggest market of them all. Not porn, not sex, the market of human happiness. And as we've said on this podcast many times, the... The goal of this show is happiness, and um, and I think these these open and honest conversations and and changing culture around yeah. sex, which is what you're trying to do, is is really important. Thank you. And where can people find you online? So you can find me online. Um, I'm at Cindy Gallup on Twitter. You can also follow at Make Love Not Porn on Twitter. I am Facebook slash dot com slash Cindy Gallup. I'm Cindy Gallup on LinkedIn. I'm yeah. I mean, you can find me in a whole variety of places, basically. Wonderful. Thank you so much. For Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show, so we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. See ya. See ya.